Welcome and thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Apshar. I'm the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray, myself, and our distinguished guests your questions live using hashtag Disrupt TV, and we will do our best to answer them in real time. It's my privilege to introduce my co-host. He's the founder and CEO of Constellation Research. He is the best-selling author of Disrupting Digital Business, one of the top futurists that you will see across all media, CNBC, Fox, Bloomberg, you name it. And in my humble opinion, one of the top thought leaders to follow on Twitter at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray Wong, to Disrupt TV. Hey, thanks a lot. When I'm not talking about coronavirus using my MPH, I'm hanging out with my friend Vala Afshar, who's one of the most interesting follows on Twitter. In fact, he's the top follower on CIOs, CMOs, and now CEOs around the world um, for his thoughts, for his insights. He's also very, very accomplished. He's a author himself. He's been on business TV, seen a lot, and more importantly, a keynote speaker. So but we're not here to talk about ourselves. We're here to learn from our guests today. And who do you have up here first, Vala? Ray, it's a privilege for us to have someone who I've been following for years on Twitter. She's incredible. Lauren Cooney, founder and CEO of Spark Labs. Lauren has 20 years of experience creating, building, and leading high growth teams, businesses, platforms, and developer communities for multiple Fortune 500 companies, including BA Systems, now Oracle, IBM, Microsoft, Juniper, and Cisco Systems. I think we first followed each other when Lauren was at Cisco, where she product management, open source product marketing, developer strategy, and new business model creations. Her work has netted companies over a billion dollars in revenue, hundreds of new clients, and over a million developers. So she recently founded Spark Labs. Spark Labs educates and empowers up-and-coming leaders of top organizations to innovate with intention and for greater good, creating diverse and authentic programs and communities to help all women accelerate their careers in technology and business. Her work has been recognized across multiple media outlets, including Huffington Post, CIO Magazine, Business Insider, Light Reading, and in fact, last year, 2019, Lauren was appointed to the Forbes Business Council. She's a must follow on Twitter at L Cooney, L-C-O-O-N-E-Y. Welcome, Lauren, to Disrupt TV. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I'm excited to be here. It's our privilege. Thank you. Hey, same here. You know, it's so good to have you here. More importantly, let's start talking about all the work that you've been doing, really about elevating women in the workplace, thinking about all the roles that you've had in the past. And, you know, let's start with the facts and set the stage for us. Why is this so important? Well, I think it's so important. I, I, you know, Melinda Gates says that it's going to take 200 years for women to reach what? real, real equality, right? 200 oh. years. And I heard this, I heard this, and don't laugh. I heard this on Oprah, an Oprah podcast as she was interviewing her. And, you know, I literally kind of stopped in my tracks and said, 200 years is not soon enough. And we need to do something about this now. And so I started really pulling together the idea for Spark Labs and what we were going to do for women in tech in particular, but also women in business, women in finance, et cetera, um, you know, that face challenges as they're going up the ladder to reach the C-suite. Because as we know, there are only, um, you know, uh, in I think it's double digits, 22% of women are now, um, you know, executives in the C-suite and, you know, have board seats. Actually, it's 4.4% that have board seats, 22% are in the C-suite. So we've got a lot of work to do. We've got a ton of work to do. Mm -hmm. And you were a successful um, senior executive in some of the biggest technology companies in the world. 
So clearly you understand the path and the rigor and persistence and outworking, outsmarting, you know, colleagues to achieve such high uh, degree of success. Mm -hmm. It must have taken a lot of courage to say, I'm going to go start my own thing. So let us know about that journey and please uh, inform us in terms of Spark Labs. Why do you do what sure. you do? Sure. Um, you know, I, I um, so I honestly did not believe that imposter syndrome was a thing for a really long time <laughs> until I got it. Until I got it, right? And then when, when I got it, it was, it was terrible. It was the worst thing I have been through. And, you know, I was looking back at 20 years of, you know, I've been in tech for 20 years. And I was looking back at that 20 years and I'm thinking, it has not gotten better. And how can I help women get through this in a way that's faster, more effective, and without as many roadblocks as I had to face? Right. And, you know, folks that know me and see me on Twitter, I'm, I'm, you know, what you see on Twitter is really me. And I am that brash at times. And fundamentally, you <laughs> know, direct. I yeah, direct, but you know, I will go through the wall to get things accomplished. Right. And I think that's what's needed at times. But you know, as you get higher up, you have to go around and under and, you know, kind of think of different ways to get your opinion heard and things along those lines. And it gets really creative. So if you want to get from really point A to B to C, there's there's strategies that you have to employ and so spark labs offers executive coaching mm -hmm. we offer career strategy which is really what is your 10-year plan how do you get there what is your platform what is your message that you're delivering and how is this authentic and how does it tie back to you as a person which is increasingly important in the workplace sure. and then also uh, we have a community for women for women in corporate environments which you know, you've got communities out there for women in startups, lots of different communities for women in startups, but where's the communities for women in corporate environments? Um, you know, the Fortune 1000. And so it's really targeted towards that and how to get ahead in, in that environment. That's amazing. Well, just remember, you can't have imposter syndrome without success. <laughs> it's, it's very true. It's very true. You know, it's, it, it's so funny when you're reading the bio at the beginning, I'm like, oh, I did make that company billions of dollars, right? Like, you know. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. You know, the, the, yeah. the rate for that is pretty low. So yeah, don't worry too much. <laughs> <laughs> so, but hey, you've been in the tech industry for a really, really long time. Mm -hmm. right? and, and when we think about this, right, there are different types of ceilings, but it's, Sometimes it's not deliberate. Sometimes it's just it's just how things have been, and no one's really stepped up and spoken. And I think you talk about that a lot, really about putting I a voice do. there. Um, talk about how that's changing the conversation um, in in some industries, and we'll we'll talk about some other areas as well in terms of other industries that shifted the other way. Because I, one day I might need Spark Labs for me. I always have your back. No, I think that there are. We're in a really interesting time where there's this this you know. Um, there's a new generation that's coming into the workforce right now. And, you know, the, the bottom line is that, um, you know, people are speaking out and they are saying things and they are being more open and more transparent and more authentic than ever. And what's happening with these workplaces, they're entering into these workplaces because they're diverse, right? Mm -hmm. And the workplaces aren't yet inclusive. So what's happening is people are focusing on diversity not inclusion when they should be focusing on inclusion and then diversity so that people have a good landing spot when they end up in companies and they stay there and they feel comfortable and they feel safe. And, you know, when you talk about changing the conversation, I think really what it comes down to is getting to the point where you realize that something is bigger than you are 
and you need to say something about it and be that first person that, you know, or second person or third person or 10th person that, you know, really kind of puts that, that stick in the ground and says, you know, this has happened to me and let me talk about it and let's, let's figure out what could have been done better here. Right. Because I think really what it comes down to is what can we do better? It's like, let's not look at the past. Let's look at the future and figure out how to fix it from that perspective. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. Um, we had uh, Whitney Johnson, who's the author of Disrupt Yourself and this mm -hmm. year, uh, Thinker's 50 recipient. And she talked about um, the importance of having mentors, but ultimately even more important, having sponsors. Mm -hmm people hiring the organization that are willing to put their social capital, political capital on the line to support a career path or career trajectory of individuals. And she said that sponsors really helped her career. When you mm -hmm. talk about different stages of career, the beginning, the middle, um, you know, mm -hmm. how important uh, is having a, a mentor and a sponsor in terms of guiding you along mm -hmm. tricky corners, uh, as you said, in order to be able to influence without authority? It's absolutely critical. I think in, in, your, in the first stages of your career, you can get, you know, I think a mentor is important right off the bat. Someone inside your company that is not in your division that can give you guidance and, you know, um, kind of provide that, um, that environment where, where you can go to someone and say, this is going on or this is happening. And then sponsorship becomes more important as you enter the middle stage of your career when you're trying to navigate Am I going to be an individual contributor? Am I going to be a team leader? Am I going to stay at this company? And I'm, am, am I going to get promoted into the right roles? Um, things along those lines. And just to differentiate, mentors are people that advise you literally a little bit closer to what you're doing. Sponsors are people that actually promote you to other people when you're not in the room. And I think that's important to distinguish. Um, you know, it, it is very important. And then as you go to kind of that next third tier, which is like you're getting to the senior director VP level, you, you need to have sponsors not only inside of your organization, but outside of your organization, because you will find that there are things that will happen with, you know, company A partnering with company B and or acquiring company C and all of a sudden someone's coming to you and asking for something and you're calling up your sponsor right? That is, you know, and you're saying, hey, can I have so-and-so executive to get a quote for this? And you save the day, right? I mean, it's, it's literally just little things like that, but it's also you get to be known as the person that is the go-to person for all this stuff. And the more connections that you can make with your network that don't necessarily need to have to be a formal sponsor or a formal mentor, the better you actually are. I think as you get to be more senior in the, in, into that VP role, for example, you need to have a really tight group of people around you. I don't think it, you know, for women, I suggest women. And of course it can be men too. I have men in my circle. Um, and just so that you can have that safe place for you to kind of talk about what's going on with your work environment, maybe what's going on with your boss, what's going on, you know, and, and you all share that information. And it is a very tight knit circle. It is five people, six people that you are willing to share that with. And honestly, you can share that with, because when you get to that level, you can't talk about a whole lot. And that's where it gets really tough. No, you definitely can't. And, and you, you make a point here that it's good to jump in and do this at the beginning to make mm -hmm. clear. Why? Why is that? Is that is there a special point? Are you more moldable? Are you more shapeable? Or is that the time to build the network? That's the time to build the network. I mean, everyone, people don't get their jobs because they're a resume on LinkedIn. They get their jobs because they know people. 
And that literally is, if you want to create that, um, you know, that, that hockey, you know, stick trajectory that everyone wants to see as a career, right? Careers are messy. You're likely not going to get that. But if you want to attempt to achieve that, you really have to put those stepping stones in place. And that's one of the critical ones is that mentor and then that sponsor. Mm -hmm. All these clients that now come to you for, for guidance and advice, mm -hmm. executives, what do you find are some of the common top barriers uh, for women entering and, 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 and staying in, 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 in companies and, and growing their careers? Uh, typically the number one reason, uh, women are staying and or leaving careers are, uh, is, is their boss. Yeah. Um, second is uh, for leaving is, uh, discrepancy in salary. Um, I've advised, you know, I had one, uh, client that I worked with that was being paid $75,000 less than <laughs> parity. Um, Wow. And, you know, I, I, I've worked at so many of these companies, I know what the, you know, about what the ranges are, right? When you've worked at enough of the companies in the Valley, you know, and, and you know enough people, you get a hold of things. Um, so I think one of the things that's interesting is that even if you think you're making a decent amount of money, always check, always check, find, find that friendly that you can kind of talk to and, you know, make sure it's a male, make sure that they're, you know, equivalent and, and talk to them and, and have that conversation with them. And it's fine. I think it's these conversations have to be had and more and more frequently if, if we're going to get things, you know, really to the point where they get better. Do you have a sense of when somebody finds out and they gracefully engage with their CHRO or direct manager or maybe even the CEO, does that result in a positive outcome or there's a correction made or are they ultimately <laughs> more often forced to leave? I would... So my recommendation, and this is actually very important here, um, yeah. I would engage directly first with your boss, mm -hmm. right? That is, that, is a, that is a relationship that hopefully you have a trusting relationship and they want you to be happy and they want to fix things. Um, if your, your boss then will reach out to HR, right? <laughs> and, and see if this is doable and if it's in budget and or if there's you know, an issue and HR will come back with a recommendation. Right. And, you know, either your boss can override that or your boss can, you know, work and, you know, try to work with you and meet you somewhere in the middle. Typically, I see salaries moving upwards, but I don't see them moving. You know, you want to always anchor high. So when I say that, um, you know, it's important to, let's say you think you deserve $50,000 a $50, raise or something like that. Anchor that to 70K, you'll get 50, right? Versus going for 50 when you'll get 25. So anchor it high and and hope for the best, but go to your boss first. That's that's really the best bet. HR is there to protect the company. One of the things that I uh, the the community and you can it's it's free for all women. So um, you can just go to sparklabsco.com and go to community and there's a app there's something in there where you can apply. Um, but in the community, we don't allow recruiters or human resources, and that is because um, in all of these employee resource groups that are funded by human resources, right. women don't, do not feel like they can say we're getting paid less or, hey, I've just, I spent three months, I transitioned and you know now I am a woman and now I am in a totally different environment mm -hmm. and I'm not getting paid equally, right? That's, and you know, or uh, for example, you know, my, my boss doesn't support me or I don't trust my boss um, mm -hmm. or, how do I, how do I even start to 
engage with, um, you know, sponsors and mentors and things like that, because people don't want to ask questions because they feel like they are going to be, they are going to really be um, labeled as, you know, um, that that will be an easy question. You should already know this sort of thing. And no, you, you don't have to. Like, there's no question that's, that's irrelevant. Just ask the question. Absolutely. Thanks for coming. Yeah, absolutely. Got some comments here. Fantastic, relevant, timely discussion. Thanks for bringing Lauren on today. She's a rock star and a champion for women. Got some interesting comments coming through. Hey, question for you. Let's say you're really successful. There's mm -hmm. a you know, massive demand in all these different industries. And I'll give you an example. Uh, I think I've, I've said this to you before. Uh, look, healthcare. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, med school missions uh, have shifted from 70% male to 30% uh, female. Now mm -hmm. to 60% female to 40% male. Mm -hmm. So, well, there's going to be a need for spark labs for males in the future in some industries. <laughs> there will be. Yeah. I, I actually am working with some, um, I, I'm, I'm working with some pharmaceutical companies right now in some of the larger conglomerates on actually enabling. Um, oh, yeah. Pharma sales reps. Great example. Well, retention is what they're looking at now is how do they retain the technical talent? Because technical talent and is, you know, and, and or STEM, right? I should say STEM so STEM broad, more broadly. Yep. How do you retain those people and make them happy? Um, because if they lose them, they, they're going to lose them to a competitor. It's a super tight market, especially in that area. And you want to make sure that you're keeping, you know, the women, especially the women that are the high potentials, you know, in a good so Explain the business model. I joined the community. It's free. When do I engage on services? What happens here? So if you, so I make my money off of executive coaching and building out um, career strategy work. Mm -hmm. There are sponsorships that are opening for things like, um, we're going to have community chats, right? It's a closed community. So, and these folks are from Google, Microsoft, Uber, Facebook, Adobe, Box, Dropbox, right? Yeah, I mean, the, the list just goes on and on. There's a great roster of, you know, women varying areas, very diverse, um, you know, inside this community. So if you want the ability to talk to these folks in an environment where they, they feel they're most comfortable, why don't you come and sponsor, uh, you know, some sort of webcast with us where you're actually talking to them about something that's going to be super relevant, like how to negotiate a better salary, you know, and that's where HR can come in and present and can tell their story. And that, that's a great opportunity for them. That's true. Right. I got someone to refer to you. I'll do it offline. So. Okay. Awesome. My last question, uh, advice to other CEO entrepreneurs. What have you learned that uh, you think would be helpful for CEOs watching the show now and starting yep. their journey? So I'm, I'm what they call a uh, solopreneur I'm learning, right? Is that it? And um, I'm, I'm running a business. I'm not, you know, I am a startup per se, but I'm a business and I'm growing. And I would say um, outsource what you don't like. So for example, I outsource like, you know, I, I can do financial stuff, but honestly it's huge overhead. So I just outsource the entire thing. Then I don't need to worry about it. And it saves me probably 15 hours a, a month. And that's huge. Sure. Um, you know, I would also say that, um, you know, get used to picking up the phone and making sales calls, right? right. If you don't have any sales experience, buy a book right? Or get on the phone with someone who has it because you're going to need it, right? And that was one of the things I had sales experience, but not down to, you know, down to closing the deal, but with big companies and lots of money. And when you're on the phone with 
CEOs and things along those lines, it gets a little different. So you want to make sure that, that you've got that sales experience and also that you are fully believing in what you're selling. That is, you, you have to absolutely fully believe in it for it to make it, to make it work. Awesome advice. Silicon Valley veteran, now champion of women, Lauren Cooney. Not that you weren't before. Lauren Cooney, founder and CEO at Spark Labs. You can follow her at L-C-O-O-N-E-Y. Shoutouts from Nicole France. She says hi as well. So, Oh, love it. <laughs> Thank you so much. You're terrific. Thank you very much. You're terrific. Thank you. Wow. We're seeing a lot of these uh, uh, advocates, champions, solopreneurs pick up. This has been great. Um, you know, and, and Lauren's been a fixture in the uh, social tech community for such a long time. So that distinction between uh, mentor sponsor was terrific, uh, really terrific. That 90 seconds of incredible stage advice there. Speaking of incredible CEOs, thought leaders, and, and change agents, our next guest is Pat Gary, founder, president, and CEO of Rootstock. Pat is founder, president, and CEO of Rootstock Software and has extensive background in software architecture and engineering. With over 30 years of management sales technical experience, Pat brings a unique blend of analytical focus and business savvy to, to the table. As CEO, Pat has applied his extensive background to developing Rootstock's nimble and powerful cloud-based SaaS solution. Pat was also the founder, former CEO of Relevant Business Systems, a client server ERP software provider with exclusive focus on discrete manufacturing companies. You can follow Pat on Twitter at P-G-A-R-R-E-H-Y, and also follow Rootstock on Twitter at Rootstock. Welcome, Pat, to Disrupt TV. Thank you. Good to talk to you. Great to hey. talk to you again. <laughs> hey, thanks a lot for joining. I mean, we, we know how little experience you had at you know, manufacturing at Martin Marietta and all these other places. <laughs> so, so you finally enter the cloud, right? And you're like, okay, this, this, these ERP systems suck. I mean, let's just be honest. <laughs> so tell me about Rootstock. Why did you start the company, right? I mean, one, you know, you can't find the right system. I get that. But, but why did you start a company? Because most people would just try to solve the problem a little differently. Well, uh, first of all, uh, you know, the, the, the thing about Rootstock was that in 2008, saw an opportunity. You know, I've always, I've been in business for 40 odd years. Um, in fact, I went and retired in 2006 and um, looking for something to do. <clears throat> and I, knew, I know the ERP space and I know where there's an opportunity. I saw an opportunity to actually build a ERP system that was now contemporary. We now call it in the cloud. Mm -hmm. I also recognized where the competition was, where the market was going, and it was actually pretty quick. The, the decision to do it was actually happened fairly quickly, and, uh, and the opportunity to do it was something I just had to go do, and I jumped in with both feet and mm -hmm. went after it. I don't know, Paul, you and I should just start a CRM company for fun. What do you think? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't really think hard about CRM company, but yeah. <laughs> I happen to be with one that's doing okay. <laughs> but speaking of doing okay, so, you know, you go to, uh, you know, if you've been following Rootstock and all the press releases last year, you've had significant wins in Canada, you had significant wins in UK, significant wins in Japan. Massive win in Germany with a car manufacturer, Southeast Asia. You keep seeing announcements of rootstock outside of U.S. with growth and expansion. So congratulations. And the question is, what's driving these markets to come to rootstock SaaS offering? And, and uh, you, know, how, you know, how are you achieving success, not just in the U.S., but globally? 
Well, first of all, uh, the market's changing, as you know. Uh, One of the big drivers is cloud adoption, and that's that's happening everywhere, of course. Um, ERP is a little later. Uh, ERP in manufacturing is even later than that. And the areas that you talk about are Japan, Southeast Asia, Northern Western Europe, as well as the United States and, and Canada, are manufacturing areas. Okay, so they just happen to be manufacturing areas which are now starting to adopt the cloud. And it was a, a vision that we had in 2008. We know that these systems you know, last 40 years. My prior company, I started in 83, and that system is still out there in legacy. And that's, that's been out there a while. Okay, so you know how these markets go. And the, the plan was is that in the very first decade, so we've been around a decade, okay? I think of these things in decades. We've been around a decade. First thing to do is build the software and build the foundation, build the company, and get into areas that uh, you're going to be able to sell, uh, let's say, in uh, four or five or six years. And so you're hearing about these now, one is that we've been there, but number two is, you know, Salesforce itself is an accelerator. It is being adopted everywhere uh, and being adopted rapidly. Um, and it just so happens that we're on the Salesforce cloud. And it's a combination of those two things, being ready and in a good position to be able to capitalize on where the market's going, as well as where Salesforce is going. That really, that's really what's happened. That's why you're seeing us now. And, and you haven't seen us in five years ago or 10 years ago or anything like that. You, you have amazing integration with the manufacturing cloud. You have amazing integration with uh, field service cloud. Um, I'm not here to talk about Salesforce products, but I, <laughs> I do know Rootstock is incredibly tightly integrated with our with our solutions and, and we appreciate that but okay enough enough of that <laughs> well, hey, look, I mean, look manufacturing's hard right we all know that mrp systems yeah. took almost 20 years to perfect right a lot of more custom codes again as400s and yep. you're taking them out of that environment right and but but you know the, the question is it's also a really tough business Right. The margins are low in manufacturing. They're not what they were used to be. You know, a lot of the businesses outside of the U.S., some's coming back. We had 500,000 manufacturing jobs come back uh, over the last couple of years. Um, but but what, what are you doing to help adoption? Right? What are the barriers? How do you get past that? You know, sometimes it's, a, it's an owner right, that's been around for a while. They pass it on to the next generation, and that helps. But, but there are other things that you guys are doing that, that have changed the market. Well, first of all, let, let's just take these one step at a time why are companies going to the cloud, okay? And then why are manufacturing's going to the cloud or why are they going to the cloud slower? Well, we all know that, uh, you know, the, the, the bullets are, everyone's going to the cloud because uh, there's risk aversion. Well, what's the risk aversion? The risk aversion is aging workforce is, is a risk that you want to get rid of. Also, the old legacy software is they're concerned that the vendor's not going to be around and they know that the vendor, the software vendor, is not uh, updating their um, soft, uh, software. The other things that are going on, going to the cloud, are, you know, OPEX versus CAPEX, lower IT costs. And, of course, the digital transformation, which we're just hearing about now, 3D printing. All of a sudden, you're now starting to hit about IoT, in the future, predictive analytics. All of these reasons are reasons to go to the cloud, not just for manufacturing, but for others. Manufacturing is slow to adopt. Why is that? Yeah, why okay, is that? and it's not just manufacturing. It's higher mid-market to upper-market manufacturing. That's because if you take a CRM product or an HR product, 
you're only dealing with one department or two. In, in an ERP, you're dealing with all the departments, not only sales, service, but engineering, inventory, procurement, financials, um, and, and, and such. And it takes a while to get all of those out. And that's really been the barrier for manufacturing. And so now it's how do you get them out? How do you get the old legacy out? How do you get the do adoption to increase? And what you have is you have a younger workforce who wants who doesn't want their grandpa's ERP, <laughs> okay? <laughs> you want a brand new contemporary ERP. You want the user wants to be able to change things. They want to be able to enable themselves on the newer technologies. And it's a matter of time. The the adoption is accelerating. I look at this very similarly to let's say 1995 or 96 where all of a sudden, you know, the manufacturing really started to come, and ERP really started to come into vogue. And we're getting off the mainframes, we're getting off the old minis, and we're getting into the new client server. And admittedly, you had that artificial Y2K, which got everybody buying quickly. If you didn't have that Y2K, that would have been like a parabolic curve, and the apex of that buy would have probably been about 2001 or 2002. Well, take that forward, and that's where we're at today. We're not even at the apex yet, but all of these factors are now coming into play, and that's what's ex that's what's happening out there. Sure, sure. Well, with 40 years of experience, Pat, you're one of the foremost authorities on ERP in the world. So I'm sure as a CEO, you get this asked this question asked a lot. But take us on a five to ten year journey. What will ERP look like 10 years from now? And of course, you mentioned some emerging technologies like additive manufacturing and 3D and sensors and internet of things which anything that can be connected mm -hmm. can be connected so things will contact the you know your service centers for replacement automatically because everything is connected and monitored advanced analytics will be a part of that and certainly artificial intelligence i can't imagine a business application that's not going to be powered by machine learning algorithms but you know what will erp look like and i know being a futurist is hard <laughs> but what will it look like 10 years from now <laughs> okay um well, I, I think I can answer that. Uh, <laughs> first of all, you know, this ERP's evolved, okay? You know, I was, when I first started out, it was the mainframes. In fact, I was before the mainframes. <laughs> and it, this was, uh, we, we, we were building software for, um, you know, in IT departments. And then all of a sudden, the, in the mid-70s, it became COTS, commercial off-the-shelf packages, where I was with Mark Marietta, developed a, the very first supply chain, and it was called MRP. And then I founded a company that was called MRP2 on the minis. And then we adopted, you know, client servers, so everything had to be GUI in the 90s. Mm -hmm. And at that point in time, and that's where the legacy is now. So now we're starting to get into where, where it is today and where it's going to go in the future. And if you look at what the legacy uh, systems had, they were big monolithic systems. Yep. They tried to do everything. The screens were very cluttered. There was not really any user tailorizations that went on, and if it did, it was done by the software vendor. And the integrations are, are horrendous, okay? I shouldn't say integrations, they're interfaces. So what we're trying to do is cure all those ills, okay? Now, we're, where are we at? We're in the cloud, okay? So that's just one thing. That doesn't, and that means more than just hosted. You could have taken all of that spaghetti legacy software and hosted it, and some have done that. But it's got to go farther than that. So one of the things that's very important is to have a very, and I might sound a little bit like Salesforce here, and I apologize if I do, but the fact is is that there's a 
a public cloud now with a very big ecosystem, which allows you as an ERP vendor or another software vendor to be able to hook to other pieces of software rather easily because you're on the same technologies. And you fast forward, and what's going on out there, you fast forward that, and now there's more tailorizations that are, <clears throat> that are, are available to you. So, for example, it's not the IT or the, excuse me, the ERP software vendor that's doing the tailorizations. It is the, um, the, the company themselves that are doing the tailorizations. So we see it today as if you look at our screens or maybe even some of the screens of our competitors, it looks more contemporary than it did in the past. It may not have all of the fields on it that you had in the past because they're in the underpinnings and you tailored it a little bit for a particular user. But going on in the future, I'll give you a future view as I see it, is probably the best example is just take any department. I'll take a, a purchasing department, for example. In the purchasing department, we as an ERP vendor will deliver our screens. And let's say one of the things that a purchasing buyer does is um, they firm requisitions to convert to purchase orders. And so we deliver our software. And the first thing a given organization may want to do is just tailor that a bit. They'll go, you know, this particular field is not applicable to me or, or, or that, that kind of thing. And so that's the first thing that they will do. But imagine if you're in a purchasing department and you've got two different types of buyers. One buys, you know, uh, long lead time commodities like aluminum or, or, or steel. Another one buys resistors, which is, you know, conducive to high engineering change. One is one buyer is concerned about lead times. Another one, another of the buyers in the same department, the desk, in the desk right next to him or her, is is thinking about, you know, tolerances and pricing and things like that versus lead times. So all of a sudden, that screen that we gave them, both of them, is now going to morph over time. And they're not going to have the software vendor do it. They're not, that user's not even going to have the IT vendor do it. Nope. They're going to be able to do it themselves. Yep. And so what you're going to have is this personal ta tailorization. And what that means to us as an ERP software vendor is that we've got to be very conscious of the lower line code or the lower line technology that enables them to do those kinds of things. So when you go into a, an organization today and you say, pull up my whatever screen it is, it'll look pretty much the same within a given department and they're doing their function. In the future, you look at it, you won't be able to tell the difference between one screen and another. And both, both buyers will be firming requisitions. And you'll see a little bit of that on a given screen, but you'll see so many other things. And then you go one more step. Because I've actually experienced this myself, or I, have, I should say I have experience in this. Let's say when I want to go buy as a buyer, I'll, get, I'll take the same example. I want to go buy so, some material. Right. Now, typically what you do today in our software as well as others is you go and you press the buttons, convert the requisition to a purchase order, send it off, the vendor's got it, et cetera. But imagine instead of doing that, you make a decision, but before you do that decision, you just press something. It's called predictive analytics. Yeah. And it'll look at the characteristics of that material and what you're trying to do. And so, for example, it will weigh that buyer that's buying the long lead time commodities. It'll, it'll weigh the, the delivery lead times as being maybe more important than price or quality versus that resistor, the predictive analytics engine, will weigh quality and price more. And those, and those predictive analytics engines 
will be inculcated within the software that you that you deliver. And that's as far as my vision goes. That's, uh, you know, it's great. It's when you talk about, when you think about your last title, choose your own adventure. You know, it's I was But hey, would you also see see this, this really big pickup in automation as well? Because we're we're seeing customers oh. ask us this question, right? It's like, can we get to zero FTEs in, in some of the back office areas, right, right. some of the supply chain areas? And and the question they keep asking is, you know, uh, how do we? When do we trust the machine, right, to fully automate? Or when do we trust? Or when do we pair up a machine with a human? Or when do we pair the human with the machine, right? Or when do we trust the human judgment, right? It's getting really crazy. So that's happening now. That's happening right now. Okay, I can, uh, I can tell you about some, one of our customers, and this is another example, and, and it's an IoT example. Imagine, imagine you are servicing printers, yep. and the toner goes down, and yep. a customer calls, and an agent re uh, receives that call, inputs the information that somebody wants their toner replaced, and that goes in as entered as a sales order into the system, and it goes through a pick pack ship process, and it gets shipped out. That's crazy. But what happens? What happens now is that that toner goes down. There's a sensor there. Yep. That sensor sends a signal. Yep. That signal creates, in effect, a API into rootstock. That that sales order is done without human intervention, and then that pick. And pack and ship is done, and now some. Now there's a packing slip that goes out to the warehouse. There now you have the human today. Maybe it'll be a robot tomorrow, <laughs> and that'll go out to put on the car. And now the car is driven by somebody. Maybe in the future it's not driven by somebody, and then and then the customer gets their toner. And that's that's based, and th those kinds of things are happening now. So an API for automated personalized VMI for toner cartridges, and automated delivery. For example, for example. You know, I mean, and, and there's going to be hundreds and hundreds of these cases. It's up to the ERP vendor to provide the hook so that these automations can be done. And it's not the ERP vendor that's, it was the ERP vendor, which is Rootstock, that did this automation. But in the future, the, these automations will be done by plugging like Legos, just plug, plugging blocks in place, which will be, which will be done by the customer. Because you don't, you as an ERP vendor, you do know a lot, but you don't know everything that a customer does, or you don't know all their practices, and they change over time. And you want to give them the, the building blocks so that they can do that with those kinds of things. Got it. Makes a lot of sense. My, my final question, uh, as CEO of Rootstock, how often are you engaged with a CIO? Are CIOs, chief information officers, actively involved in digital transformation when it comes to manufacturing ERP, or... Are you speaking to head of engineering, uh, chief technology officer, who's the primary change agent that's helping uh, really champion digital transformation in manufacturing? All, I would say all of them. All of them. Um, depending upon, I, yeah, I would definitely say all of them. In, in the past, um, maybe because of the legacy is that, at least for Relevant, which is my prior company, the systems we sold, we didn't sell to IT, we sold right to operations. Okay, and so that's my background. Um, so we know the end users. Uh, today, today, however, the CIOs are, are much more involved. So you actually talk to both. If you have that manufacturing or distribution expertise, and you know how businesses are run, and you have the technological bent that we do, you're talking to all of them. 
and, and, and they're all in the meeting together. I mean, so it's a collaboration. So it's not just, it used to be, you know, you sell a manufacturing ERP system, you, you didn't have sales involved, you had engineering and procurement and operations involved, sometimes you had the CFO involved, now you have everybody involved. That's good to hear. That, I mean, transformation is a team sport and uh, successful companies who are absolutely well in their way to, to not only modernizing legacy processes, but even re reinventing or inventing new business model op innovation opportunities, approach it from a CEO board level uh, sense of urgency and active involvement. So it's great to hear that. That's great to hear. Yeah, we're here live with Pat Gary, CEO at Rootstock, serial entrepreneur, if you remember from founder and CEO at Relevant Business Systems. Um, for those who actually follow the manufacturing space, definitely one of the manufacturing gurus in the space and in the cloud. Thank you so much for being here on a Friday with us, Pat. Thank you, Pat. Thank you. Thank you, Ray. Thank you, Vala. Thank you so much. You follow him at P-G-A-R-R-E-H-Y. Um, if you want catching up on Twitter, um, very responsive, always someone you can get a hold of. So um, wonderful. Thanks for that. him being on the show. Now we switch it up. Where are we going now? I think I'm going to hang out at the student center. This is, uh, <laughs> the students, uh, this is what we typically call our cleanup hitter spot where, you know, an all-star comes and hits a grand slam to end the show. It's our privilege to have Terry Griffith. If you remember, Terry was on our episode 49 and we're now at episode 180. So welcome back. Oh my God, it's been a while there. <laughs> it has been. Terry's a professor and author, a keynote speaker, consultant. Terry holds the Keith Beattie Chair in Innovation and Entrepreneurship at Simon Fraser University Beattie School for Business. Terry's research focuses on human and technical systems uh, for the future of work. More recently, the bottom-up application of AI, super interested in that, and other forms of automation. Terry spent two decades in Silicon Valley. In 2012, was honored as Woman of Influence by Silicon Valley Business Journal following the publication of her, her award-winning book, The Plugged-In Manager, Get in Tune with Your People, Technology, and Organization to Thrive. Terry offers program and projects for companies and associations, including Oracle, IBM, Cisco, some of the largest companies in the world, and Council of Supply Chain Management Professionals. Great segue after our previous guest. Terry serves on several advisory boards and was senior editor for organization science and associate editor for MIS Quarterly. Another awesome follow because we only bring awesome people on Twitter on our show <laughs> at Terry Griffith, T-E-R-R-I-G-R-I-F-F-I-T-H. Welcome back, Terry, to Disrupt TV. Thank you, Ola. Thank you, Ray. Great to be back. Hey, it's so good to have you back. And you've made that move from Santa Clara to, you know, British <laughs> Columbia. Uh, you know, I'm going to start there. But, but here's the question that everyone keeps asking me. What are you doing with Hyperloop? Like, we love this technology. You're a crowded innovation expert for Hyperloop transportation. I'm just going to jump in right there. Uh, All right. And, and I, was, I was talking with some of my co-authors about Hyperloop just today. We're, we're hoping to update. We have a Harvard case where we talk oh. about the founding and kind of the early years. And now that they've done some important new tests on the tube they've got built in Toulouse, they've got their pod sitting in Toulouse, France. I sadly have not been invited out there to, uh, to see that new facility. And there's nothing in Toulouse that's technologically, you know, marvels like, you know, aircraft manufacturing or some other kind of, you know, third party <laughs> like aerospace companies. But yeah, of course, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, that, that, and, it, and they had to build it on this, uh, I can't remember who owns the land, maybe it's the city owns the land, but it has to all be mobile. So 
they can pick up the pieces that they've built and move them any place, um, is my understanding anyway. So it's, it is great to watch Hyperloop, you know, kind of crowdsourced from the beginning. And now that, you know, they have these giant tubes and a giant capsule, you know, full size, uh, there are more traditional employees and we're going back in to kind of understand how do you mingle the traditional employees with the crowd that's been there for so long and then all the more traditional partners that you know are the ones building giant steel tubes and things like that <laughs> what expense reports i gotta file one of these what do you mean <laughs> I, I need approval to buy this oh my god you're gonna have a lot of fun terry <laughs> i can't wait i just want these trips to be faster yeah. <laughs> let's talk about um this notion of top-down addition of automation versus a bottom-up approach. Can you tell us the difference, distinction between the two and why one really can help um, companies and organizations reach uh, full potential? I think we're thinking about it most is what's the right mix? And so my, my colleague, John Sawyer, and I are starting to talk with some organizations about how we could come in and do assessments of where their people are, some aspects of the technological foundations they already have, and then to help them think about the mix of top down and bottom up. You know, some of these automations, you know, the ones like Pat was talking about, those are largely top down because that's where the data is, it's at the high corporate level, and that's how that's going to play out is from the top. And then people in those positions will have to kind of change their work as they go. Um, so I'm very interested to hear more from him about, you know, how that work really has changed. Then you have some other kinds of automation that you can bring in from the bottom up. I mean, you guys cover things like this all the time. Your Slack often comes in from the bottom first and, and all the rest. And we've seen some forms of automation where that's true, where you can bring in maybe robotic process automation as an individual. Um, you know, I challenge myself all the time now to try and figure out, you know, how can I build myself some piece of automation that will take something silly off my plate and give me a little bit more time to do the, the work I want to do, like talk with you guys. Uh, so people, people need to know that that opportunity exists. And then there are some tools, but not so many. I think, you know, the business model is not as powerful to say, well, I'm going to go talk to that one person versus I'm going to talk to somebody who's leading the entire organization and, and make the big sale. But you know, the, the reasoning I have is when we saw personal computers come into the, into the company, it wasn't until lots of us had access to those that we saw the breadth and the depth and the crazy different ways that we could Great use point. that technology. And I don't want to just see top-down versions of automation. I really want to see all that diversity and great and crazy ideas come from the bottom and fill in, I don't know, I talk about kind of like the white space. Makes sense. So that, that's where I'm thinking. So I think there's going to definitely be a mix. Top down is always going to dominate. And there are some great books out there looking at that. Um, but I'm hopeful that we get to see some of the bottom up stuff working too. Do, do, do you have to have uh, the ability to develop a new set of skills as students transitioning into the work, workplace in order to be able to, um, you know, drive a bottoms-up approach with lack of authority? So co-creating and collaboration and critical thinking and creativity, 
will require a certain set of skills that may be more important in the near future than, than perhaps in the past. In, indeed. And so what I try and offer the students is something super easy to remember. And right now I'm framing it as thinking in 5T. And, you know, I'll, I'll claim that little kids should really learn how to think in 5T. 5T. Um, 5T, yeah, because we see in 3D, we need to think in 5T. Oh, I love that. <laughs> right? See? I'm, I'm, yeah, tell us, what are the 5T? I'm going for the good branding. So we have a target. Everybody's right. always got a target. Okay. Yep. You have the talent, okay. the technique. Mm -hmm. uh, you've got to think about the sign of your times. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, am I forgetting one? So I said target, talent. Oh, I've left out technology. Heaven oh, forbid. Yeah. <laughs> that's okay. Technology is not the most important to you, right? So. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> so if we think about that, if we think about those five things and how they're all interconnected and we have to mix them together in some way that's appropriate for our work, that's the start. So now I've got a framework. The other thing that I think is holding us back, so you know, I certainly try and, and teach this, and I hope many others start doing it too, is we all have the opportunity to craft our work. And mm -hmm. few of us take that opportunity. Organizations may not be motivating people to take those opportunities, but we're really gonna have to do that. And you know, as we see so many people doing remote work who haven't done remote work in these, mm -hmm. these weeks, that's the chance they have to say, if I'm gonna work this way, what could I be doing differently that would really help me do a better job. And a lot of people think about work crafting as being, well, it's, I don't want to have to work with people that are negative and, and thinking about it in that kind of softer way. But I really want people to think about it from a design perspective. Where am I going to be most effective? How am I going to be most effective if I do make some, make some adjustments across that 5T landscape? And how do we help people trigger that? So very smart. That, that's where we're going. Terrific. Hey, well, you've been talking about this changing nature of work for quite some time. Um, we're stuck in the middle of the coronavirus, COVID-19, mm. a pandemic, a scare, a health crisis, the whole world being shut down by this weird kind of almost black swan event. And working from home is, is it better? Is it worse? Is it, is it getting better? What, what, what would you say? I think it's opening the door. I think uh, working from home is never always good or always bad because again, I want to go back to that 5T thing. Do I have the right technology? Do I have the right techniques to, to help me do it? Do I have clear targets so I'm going to be able to show the work I did? Right. Got clear targets. Yeah. yeah so I, no. Do we, have the, do we have the right technologies? Hmm. Uh, we certainly have better technologies than we did in 1984 when I first started looking at it. What about 2008 during SARS? Right? Probably, it's probably better than 2008. Let's give people credit there. You yes. know, we're using a platform that we trust right now. So, okay. Uh, and I think our colleagues are more attuned to it. So they have better understanding about how to come to it and come to it effectively. Uh, our, our management has a better understanding, but I think this may be, you know, as we sit in the valley, we live in that, that bubble of, oh, of course, everybody can telecommute, you know, when they need to work for the coffee well, shop. I don't have to worry about my kids hanging out at home, but oh yeah, go ahead. <laughs> and, and so this event may be letting people have experiments 
a natural experiment. We're seeing a natural experiment of remote work exploding. And I hope a lot of the organizations are gonna step back and I hope the employees of those organizations are gonna step forward and say, that worked for me or that could have worked better for me if we had done these other things differently. And these are the instances where I think we should just be doing this. <laughs> so, you know, more, more, more babies or more marital strife? Where do you go on this one? <laughs> <laughs> but but are, they, are, they, are there undergraduate courses or even institutions that have training curriculum to help you better understand the tools that are available, slight adjustments you need to make in your mindset in terms of how you communicate outcomes and engage with, you know, remote colleagues and, and stakeholders, perhaps customers and, and partners. Do you feel that, you know, employees are in better position to know how to succeed when they're not, you know, in an office, in meetings and in front of their colleagues and managers? If, if they are fortunate enough to be in front of faculty who are seeing how that's adjusting, I'm happy to say that if I look at any of the higher ed, newspapers, listservs, whatever, they're talking about how the world of work is changing. And I don't think we're gonna see new classes. I'm not gonna see a class on how to be a remote worker, but if I'm in a class where we cover how to work in teams, we're covering how to work in virtual teams. And certainly if they're, you know, I'll say fortunate enough to have a class with me, they're going to hear about, you know, how do I build my work and how do I take kind of control of at least some aspects of that work so that I am prepared to work in whatever environment I'm in. And, you know, I'm teaching an innovation and entrepreneurship class right now that is engineers, arts and sciences, business school students, total mix. And it's not about venture creation, it's about an entrepreneurial mindset, which I think also lends itself to being willing to adjust things to make them better. Right, right. That's really important. That's really, I mean, you know, I'm fortunate enough to work at a company where for a long time, there's realization that work isn't a place, you know, work is outcome. So, so, uh, but I have to tell you, I spent 20 years in offices and then the last four as uh, someone that was from home. Offices, man. Yeah, first 20 years was, uh, and not only office, the last 10 years was office right next to the CEO. So talk about being <laughs> always, uh, always your A game. Uh, and then now the last four and a half years, working from home and it took some adjusting. Uh, you know, how do I leverage the technology? How do I, you know, efficiently manage a meeting when it's a remote uh, uh, individual and, uh, you know, even crafting emails and, you know, you really have to think about being precise, uh, relevant, concise, uh, and, uh, and, and, and engage. And you have to have that ability to be self-motivated to, to try to engage as much as possible when, when you're not really in the office. And we know so much happens just in home conversations. So those informal connections or events can really shape your thinking and your approach to business. So it's, it's, it takes more work and you also need managers yes. who are, you know, uh, effective, strong leaders because they're able to educate and motivate you and inspire you when they're not in front of you. Uh, so it does take some different muscles to develop, in my opinion. And, and I think that goes to the point that there's no one way, but it is important that we're thoughtful about whatever way right. we're doing it. So, you know, I'll claim 
we probably can make improvements even if we are just working from an office. There's plenty of things we could be doing better about, you know, what time of the day am I most productive? What time of the day am I most likely to be able to work with the people I need to work with? Um, how could I document my work or make, make my work flow more easily lose, using some kind of automation? And then if you're gonna shift it to say, now I'm working from home or a co-working space or even a client's office, what are all the, the slight adjustments I need to make to be the most effective and get the most out of the work I'm doing? Right. Yeah, you know, or, or remember to do certain things like drink water. <laughs> if you go, office, you, you go out there for your break, right? You get some water, you get something to eat. Like when you're working from home, like I have skipped so many meals. It's crazy. <laughs> you sit there like, what's happening? But hey, I want to ask you one last question. It's really about BC, right? You're in British Columbia, in Vancouver. What's the innovation entrepreneurship scene? How's it a little bit different than the Valley? Uh, what are you seeing there? I'm hanging out here at your new Simon Fraser Student Union Center. Looks great. Yeah. I wish it were open. Yeah. <laughs> Construction models are great. Conceptual models are great. Construction. Uh, one of the reasons I came up here is it feels like a more hopeful version of an entrepreneurial community. And I don't know if that's the Canadian aspect to it, the fact that it's somewhat, you know, earlier in the wave of being a fantastic uh, entrepreneurial hub, but Everything, every event I've gone to so far, I feel, I feel a lot more hope, a little bit less of the tension that we sometimes feel. Um, you know, I'll say that I haven't felt as much of the bro culture and that there's an active attempt to not build that in. So. Very cool. That's very, very good. Absolutely fantastic. And there's a, a lot of openness, you know, AR and VR are really strong up here. So new ways of educating, um, seeing different kinds of online online things. And I'm certainly trying to go in that direction too, you know, come up with new ways of teaching. So Ray, you and I need to do a On the Road Disrupt TV at SFU. So you gotta put that on our calendar. You are very welcome. We will set you up. <laughs> so <laughs> we are here with the Keith Beatty Chair in Innovation Entrepreneurship at the Beatles School of Business at Simon Fraser University. We're talking to a professor, an author, innovator herself, and keynote speaker. And thanks for being on the show, Terry Griffith. You can follow her with her name at T-E-R-R-I-G-R-I-F-F-I-T-H. That's two R's, two F's, and you can follow her on Twitter. So thank nice you, Terry. You you. Thank you. See you guys. We'll have you back sooner, I promise. <laughs> now I know why you're not at my barbecues. You're in Vancouver. <laughs> <laughs> right. She's amazing. And she was, uh, yeah, she's, she's, she's all incredibly active on social as well. So definitely follow her on Twitter. Next week, Ray, we have our own Ramakwami, Chief Technology Officer at Nielsen Connect. We have one of my favorite guests coming back, Tasha Keeney, uh, analyst at ARK Investment Management. Uh, Tasha, last time I was on the show, was right after an interview she had in person with Elon Musk talking about how Tesla is at least three years ahead of all other car manufacturers in the world. And uh, one of our other favorite return guests, uh, Brian Fanzo, speaker, change evangelist, social influencer, and certainly a future of work expert. And uh, you know, we're also, I, I think you have an upcoming uh, webinar coming up talking about what's been top of mind for a lot of us. Ray, tell us about that. We do, but actually first, I'm actually joining Brian Fanzo if he's going to South by. It's the only show that's going to be left after this. 
<laughs> carnage of like coronavirus panics. That's all I'm gonna say, right? Look, it's good to be safe. I have a after public health background from Johns Hopkins. I know that there's a need for caution, abundance of caution uh, in, in this case. But Jesus Christ, proportionality of response is important. If we gave this much, in, like, if you gave us care to influence A and B, we would have solved this virus problem and flu season by, like, you know, 10 years ago. So, anyways, we're going to learn about the techniques. If you're going to do a live event, how would you do this, right? Mm -hmm. If you're not going to do a live event, you know, don't worry about it. Uh, we'll figure out virtual events, how they actually work well. Um, but we'll talk about different strategies. And we're also talking about the segmentation of events. Um, you can find all this stuff in our Coping with COVID-19 webinar series. And you can follow the hashtag Coronavirus Biz Hacks. Go to the Constellation website. You'll see some things already up there. Brand trust in an age of fear and virus. March 5th, it was done already. Catch the replay with Liz Miller. A guide to remote work. Dion Hinchcliffe is going to be doing something about COVID-19 and future work. And I'll be doing hosting events amidst a coronavirus. Uh, Dion's is Wednesday, March 11th at 11 a.m. PT. And mine's Thursday, March 12th at 10 a.m. So you can find the registration. It's all free. And we hope to see you there as we do more virtual events. And of course, you'll see Disrupt TV every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern with me and Bala. So You've been doing virtual events for four years, Ray. One last thing. Talk about the blog you wrote that I saw thousands of comments and shares. It was perhaps one of the most popular articles I've seen you write recently in terms of event preparation before, during, and after. Can you talk about Right. We really wanted to help people figure out what happens. And we'll be talking about this uh, in the uh, webinar, but it's really about thinking about what you have to do if you're really going to throw these types of events, you know, whether pre-event precautions, making sure guests that are sick aren't there, making you screen appropriately, follow the right guidelines, work with, you know, local officials. Then, of course, when you're there, making sure that you take precautions, anything from little things like some people just don't wash their hands in the bathroom. So put hand sanitizers like in front of the buffet. So little tips like that, you can catch it. It's a free blog. Um, we'll talk more at the event. I'm sure it's gonna be lots of questions on the webinar and then follow up in the post event, right? You've got the data, you've got your, you've got the permission to follow up, run some epidemiological studies. Were you sick? Do you feel okay? Ask them 14 days later, see how they're feeling and use that as a way to help control the virus. You know, and we've got some helpful tips there. So follow hey, Ray on Twitter at RWANG0. I, I, last time I checked, it was a pinned tweet, but you can see it in the stream because it's, uh, it, it, it was incredibly, incredibly engaging posts. And you got feedback from, incredible number of companies that really thanked you for essentially leveraging your healthcare background to guide these companies. So congratulations on a very successful post. And uh, if it's Friday at Disrupt TV, we'll see you here next week. And uh, thanks everyone for tuning in. Hey everybody, take care. Bye-bye.